All right. Today we're going to do a little review slash cleanup on some of the questions people approached me with. On the last stuff, we're going to finish Genesis 11, and we're going to kind of barrel through Genesis 12 and 13, which is where we get introduced to Abram. And uh, one thing I want us to pay attention to is um, Abraham, he becomes Abraham. God changes his name. Abram is the one that God chooses to start this rescue plan to bring humanity back. And when we think of Abraham... I think we we don't deify him, but he's like this super figure. And that's kind of how he's viewed around the world. And it's one of the remarkable things about Abraham is that uh, the Muslims trace back and consider Abraham the first of the prophets, and the Christians trace back and consider Abraham the father of the nations, of God's rescue plan. It's going to bring us to Jesus, and the Jews look back on Abraham. And when you think about the world, they say there's roughly about 2.4 billion Christians in the world. I don't know if that means practicing and real devoted followers of Christ, but they lump them into the Christian section. They say there's 2 billion Muslims in the world, so that's 4.4 billion people in the world who actually think about this guy and admonish this guy. And that's a strange, when you think about that, because you think about, you think Jesus, but the Muslims don't, don't really view and admonish Jesus the way that we do. And so this is kind of a guy that everybody, everybody seems to get along with and want, and kind of they think about a lot. So I don't think there's anybody, there, anybody else from history has really done that. This Abraham guy. And uh, God picked him. This was God's plan. So as we start going through Abraham's story, let's just watch his, his personality features that we can grasp out of that. Let's look at the stuff that he comes out ahead on and some of the stuff he comes out behind on and the fact that this is who God picked. And, and what does that mean for people like us? And how does that relate to us? So again, we look at the problems We've been going through this now for weeks. Problem one was Genesis 3. That was the entrance of sin and death. We're introduced to the serpent, who is some kind of spiritual being. Uh, Problem two, we get depravity and hyper-sin. Then that brings on the flood, and that brings on the the Nephilim, the the sons of God who, who mated with the sons of, or the daughters of Adam. And, uh, we get these spirits and demons out of that. We, get to, we finally get to problem three, which was the Tower of Babylon, Tower of Babel. We get disunity of humans, and we get that, that nations are turned over to other spiritual powers that are under, under Yahweh. And so we're finally leaving the world history section. We're moving into the direct. We're going to focus on this one dude and all of his family. And, and that's just kind of where we're at. The questions that I've been getting, a lot of people want to flesh out the spiritual realm a little bit because we're using some terms and we're talking about some figures. So there's going to be, I've got two short Bible project videos that are definitely worth watching at this point. And it's nice because they're going to they're gonna do some clarification and some thought about how the ancient Near Eastern people, which would be everybody in the Middle East and the Mediterranean and how they thought about spiritual beings, which is going to be important when we start reading about Abraham and what God says to Abraham. So 
Let's see if it works. The Bible, you don't have okay. to read far before you meet the main character, God. Yeah, he appears in the Bible's first sentence. And then later on page one, you meet the humans. And there you have it. The two main players in the Bible, God and humans on the stage of our world. Well, not quite. In the Bible, there's actually a way bigger cast of characters than just humans and God. Like who? I mean the figures called the Elohim in the Hebrew scriptures. Angels, the Satan, demons, they're all over the story. Oh right, spiritual beings. To be honest, I've never really known what to do with them. It's all kind of weird. And unfortunately, almost all of our modern conceptions about these beings are based on serious misunderstandings. Alright, so let's talk about spiritual beings in the story of the Bible. So first thing we have to do is reorient ourselves to how the ancient biblical authors saw the world. On pages 1 and 2 of Genesis, God brings order to a watery wilderness, separating the skies above from the land below. Right, this is Earth, where we live. And then there's the heavens high above, which they saw as God's domain. But in the Bible, these spaces are not separate. They overlap. And in fact, the Garden of Eden is described throughout the Bible as a high mountain garden where heaven and earth are one. Cool. So that's the world. Now it needs some creatures. God first creates and appoints the sun, moon, and stars to rule the day and night. You mean the giant flaming gas balls in the sky? Well, that's how you think about them. But the biblical authors, like all ancient people, saw them as heavenly creatures that are glorious, shining bright, and high above. Which is strange. I don't think of stars as creatures. Well, you don't. But for the biblical authors, the stars formed their categories for thinking and talking about a spiritual reality that exists alongside ours. And it's a different kind of reality, just like the sky is different from the land. And it's populated with creatures that have different kinds of bodies, shiny spiritual bodies. Okay, so almost all ancient cultures thought of the stars as divine beings, including the ancient Israelites. But the biblical authors make clear that these beings are not God. Rather, they're images of God. Their glory and high status is a reflection of the Creator's glory and status, and they exist to serve His purposes. So the stars symbolize beings who are like God's heavenly staff team. Right. Now let's go back, because after God appointed the heavenly host, he also appointed another type of creature. The humans. Yeah, in Hebrew they're called Adam, which sounds like the Hebrew word for dirt, because that's what they're made of. So, glorious rulers above, and hairy sapiens below. But then comes the great twist. God tells the lowly humans that they are to rule all of creation. He invites them to rise above their dirty origins and share in God's glory as his partners. So God wants to rule the world through humans and not the spiritual beings. Exactly. This is how the poet of Psalm 8 understood the stories of Genesis. He looked up at the stars and says, What is humanity that you consider him? You made him lower than the spiritual beings, but crowned him with glory and divine majesty. This is humanity's high calling, to rule creation in the love and power of God. Very cool. But not everyone's happy. We're introduced to a spiritual being who doesn't want humans to rule. So he tricks them into thinking that they can get divine power on their own terms. They're deceived and they take the opportunity. So they're banished from the Eden mountain, exiled to wander the earth and return to the dust. This snake is bad news. Yeah, and as you read on, you discover that he's part of a spiritual rebellion that follows the humans outside of Eden, and things get worse from here. The humans still desire to rule, so they start a new project. Yes, in the Bible, this is called Babylon. It's the anti-Eden, where human and spiritual rebels join together to elevate themselves back to their former glory. 
And so, with all that in mind, we can now appreciate the full cast of characters that we meet in the biblical story. God, humans, and all of the spiritual beings. Exactly. And so here's a preview of what we're going to explore. We'll learn more about God's heavenly staff team called the Divine Council. Then we'll talk about angels and cherubim, key figures in the spiritual realm. And then one particular angel called the Angel of the Lord. We'll also look at the spiritual rebels in the Bible, connected with the Satan and demons. And finally, we'll see how this whole story leads to Jesus, the one who overcomes evil, reunites heaven and earth, so that a new humanity can partner with God. When most people think about the story of the Bible, they think of a story about God and humans. But remember, we learned that there's a whole other cast of characters that appears throughout the Bible and plays a really important role. Right. Spiritual beings, angels, demons, and the like. Right. And in the Bible, they inhabit the heavenly realm, which is parallel to our earthly reality and actually overlaps with it. Now, all of these spiritual beings have their own unique characteristics. But here's what's fascinating. The biblical authors have one word that can refer to all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. In Old Testament Hebrew, the word is Elohim, and in New Testament Greek, it's Theos. But here's the thing. This word gets translated in lots of different ways depending on which being is referred to. Angels, gods with a lowercase g, or even God with a capital G. Wait, so one word can refer to any of these beings? Yeah. It's because Elohim is a category title. It can designate any spiritual being that belongs to the heavenly realm. Okay, a title, not a name. Like the word mom. Yeah, right. The word mom can refer to lots of really different kinds of people, but they all share in common the same role in a family. And then let's say a group of brothers and sisters are talking and one says, hey, it's mom's birthday. They're using the title like it's a name. But it would be clear that they're referring not to any mom, but their mom. Yes, and the same goes for the biblical authors. They called their god Yahweh, which is the name revealed to Moses. But they also sometimes refer to him with the category title Elohim, using it like a name, because they all know who they're referring to. Okay, but don't the biblical authors think that Yahweh's in a class of his own, not like any other? They do, which is why they say things like, Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim. That is, the chief Elohim among all the others. Or they'll say, there's no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning no other spiritual being compares to him because only he is the ruler and creator of all things. Okay, I'm following, but I thought the Bible taught monotheism, which means there's just one God. Well, the biblical authors are claiming that among all of the spiritual beings out there, only one is the source and creator of all things, including the Elohim. That's biblical monotheism, that one Elohim, Yahweh, is above all other Elohim, that is, the other spiritual beings. Now, with all that said, we are ready to learn more about who these other Elohim are and how they fit into the biblical story. So hopefully that clarified some of the language we've been using over the last couple weeks a bit. Um, some of the concepts can kind of freak people out when you start talking about God's lowercase g. They get a little, little wigged out about it, which is okay. That series is on YouTube. It's part of the Bible Project. It's the Spiritual Beings series. I'd encourage people to finish it. It's pretty good, but we're not going to sit here and watch videos all day. But it's great. So I would encourage you to, any of the stuff they put out is pretty good. I like it. Um, so we're going to get back into Genesis 11. We ended with the Tower of Babel last week. 
Um, after the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11 gets into another genealogy thing, and we're going to skip that genealogy thing because it's literally just a genealogy in this case. There's nothing else added into it. And we're going to go right to the end of Genesis 11 so we can meet Abram. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, so that's confusing because Haran's a guy's name, but Haran is also a region. So just so we're clear there. But they, when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So they're still getting to the end of this whole genealogy thing, but now you have Abram, and you have Abram leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, with Abram's age, if you go through, and I don't know how much of like the years of people's lives and stuff, you have to do all the, the math calculations. I didn't lay it all out, but I've, I, there's a diagram I looked at. What you have to realize is that Noah's actually still alive when Abram is born, because Noah lives to be like 900-something. And so all these guys, all these families, so Abram, there's a chance that Abram, you know, in, in Jewish legend, they hung out. But there's a chance that Abram and Noah knew each other. And Noah would have visited his great, 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 whatever. And um, so you got all these people living around. They're all together. And we're not sure when the Tower of Babel exactly happens. We know that it happens during the life of that Peleg guy that we talked about, because his name means to divide or split, and that's why he was named that, because it happened during his time. That was like a prophetic name given to him. Um, so there's a good chance that Abram was around when the Tower of Babel event happened. And the Tower of Babel event would have been in Babel, whereas we find out that Abram's living in Ur. And we'll talk a little bit about Ur. Um, just so I know a little bit about Ur. Ur is famous for its large ziggurat, and this is all that's left after it's been reconstructed a couple times. Again, everything in the Middle East floods, comes back slowly. The geography changes. Right now, you have this in the middle of a desert where this would have been a garden. This would have been lush, you know, 4,000-something years ago. Um, but Ur was known for its large ziggurats. So this is where Abram is, is growing up, kind of in the shadow of this, this foreign temple. Um, its name is Etamenneguru, which means temple whose foundation creates the aura. And the aura, we're not exactly sure, but they believe it's this, it was a spiritual aura of a mixing of the spiritual realm and uh, the physical realm. The other ziggurat that we talked about last week, if the Tower of Babel, Babel was a ziggurat, there is a ziggurat ruins that are left in the, in the Babylon region. There's, it's just like barely a foundation. And, uh, but they know based on plans and different things that they've found that it was also very, very, very large. And that was called Entamenaki, which means temple whose foundation is the mixing of heaven and earth. 
And so it's that whole idea, again, of you go to the ziggurat, and these two realms meet, and you, you meet with God or whatever spiritual being is there. Um, Ur at the time, Ur the Chaldeans was a very large city, too. It was pretty big. It wasn't Babel big, but it was part of the Mesopotamian Empire. Um, and um, the Chaldeans, if you read about the Chaldeans in history, the Chaldeans is like a Greek way of saying the Akkadians. So if you've heard of Akkadia in history, we talked about Akkadia a little bit before, but they're right there with the Babylonians and the Sumerians in that time frame. So the Chaldeans are Akkadians, and uh, they all speak languages very similar, Semitic languages, very similar to Hebrew. And remember that Semitic means that it's a language that comes from Shem's family, Shem the son of Noah. So any of the Semitic languages are from Shem, Noah's son. All right, so here's a picture of Mesopotamia with a little bit of Mediterranean mixed in. That red arrow down at the bottom is pointing to where Ur is, was. And so that's kind of where it's located. So when you think about Abraham and his journey, he's just going to start his journey just a little bit north from the Persian Gulf, a little northwest from the Persian Gulf. So before he makes his, his journey start, this is where he grew up, in the shadow of this great ziggurat, and uh, that's his history. So there's a, you know, there's a chance that Abram was probably there for the birth of some of the paganism of the other religions. That's Abraham's background. So we're going to get into Genesis 12, and we're going to start diving into who Abram is. And now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So last chapter, we had the divorce of the nations, where Yahweh removes himself from the nations who are in rebellion. And we're not even very far, and we're already to the point where Yahweh's like, I have this plan to bring them all back. So it's not like it's not like he did it, and then he stewed on his anger, like Yahweh stewed on his anger, and then came up with a plan. This is like happening pretty, pretty simultaneously. So he's picked this Abram guy. And, you know, I don't know if he appeared to, to Abram in a vision, if he just talked to him, whether he came to him in a dream. In this case, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us. Um, I'm, I'm more to believe he, he an audible voice or a dream, but I don't know. But we are going to see later that Yahweh actually starts physically showing up to, to Abram, which is amazing. And so Genesis 12, 4, Abram went as the Lord had, Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Um, so the first thing I want to point out is he takes Lot with him. So already we see with Abram, there seems to be some kind of fathering 
or fathering heart that's in him, he's not going to let his brother's son, remember that's the, the brother that died back in Ur, that was in Genesis 11, he's not going to let his brother's son go along that route. He's taking his brother's son to go with him and be part of the blessing. He didn't have to. We know that, uh, that Abram had another brother. We don't really know what happens to Abram's brother from here. We won't find out for a bit. And, um, but he's got this heart for Lot. And uh, he takes him in, and now he's taking him in as his own. And so we see right away that Abram has this father's heart. So there's one redeeming quality of Abram that we get to today before we get to some unredeeming qualities of Abram. But, but family matters to him. That, that nephew matters to him. And the other thing I want to point out is in the story of Abraham, we're going to come back and forth from these oaks. And I'm not sure exactly all the significance of it, but there's this repetition of Abram going to these, these oaks. And what it is about an oak tree and what it is about an oak tree and Yahweh in this time and period, I don't know. But I think we'll, we'll dive into that more as we go through here. But here's the first one where they talk about him going to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Canaanites came from Canaan, who was a son of Ham. Remember, Ham is the bad son, Noah's bad son. And we're warned about bad ham and watching out for bad ham's kids. And so right now we're getting into the confrontation. These guys who are of the bad kid, they're there in the land. And so they're just reminding you that the Canaanites are there right now. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I'm going to give you this land. So he built there an an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So there, when he's there, Yahweh appears to him. So whatever that was like, I don't know. But it was enough that he he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared there to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. So just so we're clear with Bethel, Bethel is a name that means... It's, it's Bethel in Hebrew, and Beth is house, and El is just a shorthand for God. So this place is called the house of God. So what was there? I don't know. But that's what Bethel means. So there's a trivia fact for you on Bethel. So between the country of the house of God and the, the, the west of Ai, so that's where he's at. And we'll come back to Bethel in the future in the stories of Abraham's family. A lot of these things get repeated. Uh, and we're going towards the Negev, which is another way of saying the Negev, which I'm going to show you some geography here, is that golden triangle-shaped part at the end of Israel. So it's got a lot of desert to it, but it's got a lot of other things to it. It's got some modern city names on there, but that doesn't really matter for now. And you'll notice that it's right next to Egypt. It's right next to that Sinai Peninsula. So his proximity to both the Canaanites and his proximity to both uh, the Egyptians are going to come into play during his story. So he's gone from kind of just off the Persian Gulf. He's already made it over here. So we're kind of, he's moving quick. He's already at this place where God has given him. However, it's inhabited by a bunch of people. And Abram is just a guy in a household right now. Genesis 12. 
Number 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was so severe in the land. This is setting up everything that we get back with Joseph's story, too. We see the same repetition uh, the, the, where, the, where the tribes of Israel are going to stay. There's going to be another famine, and because of that famine, they're going to be forced to go down to Egypt again. So this must have been a regular occurrence of the world at that time. And uh, so Abram goes down. When he is about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So, Pharaoh gives Abram a lot of stuff for his sister, and Abram just lets it happen. Now, there's a couple things here you have to realize with Abram. He's supposed to be a pillar of faith. Okay, pillar of faith. But what does he do? He's not trusting that Yahweh can deliver him from the hand of Egypt. So the first thing we see is this pillar of faith isn't quite there yet with his faith. This guy's going through things. And uh, this is pretty normal. This is pretty normal in God's story. And I always come back to this. God's not looking for perfection. God is not looking for somebody with a super clean past. God is looking for people that love him and have believing loyalty in him and are going to stick with him. Abraham's not abandoning Yahweh for an Egyptian God. But Abraham is being a sneaky snake liar right now. And at the expense, at the expense of giving his wife, who is supposed to bear this blessing, away for the time being, I don't know what he's thinking. But I like that I like that these stories are in the Bible and that it's not just like a good list of Abram's deeds. Because it it just adds to the reality of of the humans that God likes to work with. Alright. So he's lied to Pharaoh. Evidently, he's had an audience with Pharaoh. Not only has he lied to Pharaoh, but it looks like he's taken goods from Pharaoh. So he's kind of swindled Pharaoh out of these goods. Way to go, Abram. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Remember, God just said, whoever's going to do that bad stuff to you, I'm going to curse. So Yahweh's coming through on his promise to Abram. Um. And so Pharaoh called Abram. Another thing, plagues in Egypt. We're, we're going to see plagues on Egypt again, won't we? So there's this idea that Yahweh deals pretty harshly with plagues with Egypt. And um, so, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So at that point, Pharaoh is done with this. He's not even worried about taking the stuff back from Abram. He just wants him out of Egypt. So Abraham's kicked out of Egypt. Abram. So again, this is the guy that God is choosing to work with. So Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. So he's back into that southern desert in Israel. 
Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first, at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So we've gone a little bit into the future. Abram's coming back. Evidently, whatever time he spent in Egypt, he had some stuff, but now he's pretty much filthy rich. And Lot is also doing very well, enough that that Negev desert area is not enough for the two of them. So now they've got to split. And their herdsmen are having arguments over resources. And so we're going to have to test another. We're going to do another Abram test here. How is Abram going to take this test with his family member that he's helped out from the beginning? And is that family member going to submit to Abram? What's going to happen? Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abram's giving him the choice of land. Not the way it necessarily would have gone down. Abram is firstborn in the order, and Lot should have taken whatever Abram just gave him. But again, we see Abram's heart for this nephew slash son to him in doing this. So we move from sneaky snake liar swindler back to this guy who's really got a heart for his family. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. So very fertile valley. He's going to go take the Jordan Valley. Now Lot evidently is not like, I want to honor my uncle and let him have the best. Lot takes the best for himself. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll get to Sodom and Gomorrah. That was on our list of things people picked. So we've got to get there. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. And thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, well, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom or Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So again, they're, they're building this up, these members of Sodom. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent, and he came and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So again, something about building this altar by this, a new grove of oaks. And they liked oak trees. Josiah's a wood guy. You like oak, don't you? Yeah, something about oaks, I guess. And so 
That's kind of where we're going to stop for today because we start getting into more of the action stories after this. But um, that's the beginning of Abram's journey. And looking at Abram right now, you're kind of you're kind of in the middle with Abram. You don't know what he's going to do, and he's he's being blessed. God has a plan for him. We can clearly see that he's delivered him from one of the major nations of the world. But he's still he's still kind of shifty, and there are times where it seems like he doesn't trust in Yahweh. He trusts in Yahweh when he gives the good stuff to Lot, but he doesn't trust in Yahweh when he's facing Pharaoh. So I don't know. That's just kind of the journey of Abram so far. And what we get with the journey of Abram is we're going to start seeing this guy's character build. And we're going to see him. He's still going to be making mistakes. And his wife is going to make some mistakes. But they're going to end up different. And you're going to see God's plan through this guy to bring the nations back. You know, it, so far in Genesis, what we've seen is a lot of humans... God picks these ones to do things. And they just have, they just, Noah, like, thank you, God, for saving me and my family from the destruction that you rained on the world. I'm going to go get drunk. And then you got Abram, who Yahweh, creator of the universe, is appearing to him in some form. And still when he goes to Egypt, he does what he does. And ladies and gentlemen, God has plans for all of us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's gonna not not that you should just willingly go out and do stupid stuff. Don't go out and do willing, willingly stupid stuff so that God can God works all these bad things to good. That doesn't mean we need to produce bad things. That's not what the verse means. I don't think Abram's intention was to just do bad things so that God will will do that. I think Abram was just being human. But but it's just it's a good reassurance. And Abram's family, like we already talked on Mother's Day about, about Jacob and then Jacob's kids. Like it's just, it's messed up. It's dysfunctional all the way through. It is this dysfunctional family that still makes it through because they're still loyal to Yahweh. That makes me feel good. That makes me feel good a lot. It makes me know that even though there can be dysfunction, Yahweh's there. And he's given us Jesus. Jesus can make things right. So that's just where we're going to end today. I didn't want to get too far into it. I wanted to be able to touch up on some of the stuff we talked about previously. But when we get with Abraham, we're going to get to some of the more famous stories. And um, he's going to get his kid. Well, he's going to get multiple kids. We're going to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah, which the Sodom and Gomorrah thing is going to go right back to things that we already talked about. There's this repeating theme that's still happening, even though we're focused on a family. Um, So let's just pray. Lord, we thank you again, no matter how many times we say it, we thank you that you love us and you want to work with us. We thank you that you've called us into what you're doing and that we get to engage in things with you. Creator of the universe, the name above all names, there's no one like you. And like that video shows, you pick these these creatures of dirt to be those that would spread your kingdom. And Lord, I am ever thankful of that. And I'm thankful for your faithfulness through all generations, through all the different people that you've been faithful to, even when there's moments of unfaithfulness. 
Lord, that it is always your desire to bring everybody in. And Lord, that as we've seen that desire that has existed for thousands and thousands of years to bring everybody back to the kingdom, Lord, I just ask that you would instill that in our hearts, that desire to see everybody come in, everybody make it back into the kingdom. Lord, that that would motivate our lives. That eternal mandate is still there. So Lord, make that real for us. We thank you for using us, working with us, living inside us. We thank you that we don't have to go on top of a ziggurat to see where heaven intersects with earth, but Lord, that you've given us Holy Spirit who lives in us. And inside us is where heaven and earth connect. And Lord, we love you and we thank you for that. We thank you so much, Lord. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.